You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and next week is our 300th episode. We had an event to celebrate our 300th episode in New York City back on Friday. And let me tell you, thank you to everyone who came out and showed up. Thanks to you who tuned in on the live stream. Those of you who chimed in on social media. Thanks to Gail Anderson. Thanks to Eddie Opara. Thanks to Cat Small. Thanks to the Green Space for hosting. Thanks to Glitch. I mean, it was a really great night. So for those of you who might have missed it, we did record the audio from that event. And we're going to release that as a special episode on July the 1st. So be on the lookout for that. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program. It's a grant competition that supports designers partnering with nonprofit organizations to bring impactful cause marketing campaigns to life. Sappy, a maker of high quality papers, has offered this program to the design community worldwide for 20 years, and they funded more than 500 projects with grants totaling over $13 million. Winning campaigns have helped to raise awareness of social issues such as education, sustainability, nutrition, and more. If you'd like to submit a project that you care about, you can do so until July 19th. To learn more about the program and process, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. We'll also put a link to it down in the show notes. Now for this week's interview, we're talking with Rich Smith, senior UI engineer at Netflix. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Rich Smith. Uh, I am a UI engineer, a senior UI engineer at Netflix, and I work um, currently on a team that builds apps for our marketing team. Uh, so it's internal facing apps, and uh, the apps are essentially to help the marketing team scale their efforts with regards to trailer creation and localization around the world. I was just about to ask you kind of what that team uh, is sort of comprised of, because I know a few years ago, Netflix had really expanded to make sure that they were available in every country. Right. So I feel like the marketing tech team probably has a pretty big lift at Netflix. Yeah, so it, it matters a lot to us um, for all of our customers to find content on the service that they enjoy and that they can identify with. Um, and so to that end, our marketing team kind of exists in little pockets all over the world. And we and, and many of our offices globally, there are marketing uh, team members within them so that they can have a better understanding of the culture of that region and of the countries that we're in so that we can better serve our customers. Okay. And so with the work that you do as a UI engineer, is it just on like the mobile apps? Is it on the web apps? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So the current focus of my team uh, is exclusively web apps. Okay. Um, I think the only mobile apps that we really have on the internal side would probably be for our studio partners. Um, but beyond that, the other major mobile team that exists is for our external facing product, the main Netflix product that uh, everyone knows about. Now, you've worked at a few other companies out in the Bay Area, from what I could tell from my research. You've worked at Omni, mm -hmm. you worked at Recurly, you worked at a few others. What drew you to Netflix? That's a good question. So after working at those companies that you mentioned, uh, which were much, much smaller startups, uh, the largest of them being only around 50 employees, 
I just decided that I wanted a change of pace and I wanted something that I wasn't able to find at a startup myself uh, in the several years that I've worked at them. And part of that was better pay. Part of that was better work-life balance, just because depending on the stage of the startup as an engineer, sometimes you have to work really hard, um, which I've done and I've been burned out a few times. And I wanted to work at a company that had a more mature culture, um, somewhere that kind of had its identity figured out and wasn't worried about finding product market fit, but instead was focused more on growth um, and entering into a new phase of, of maturity for the company. And originally, Netflix honestly wasn't even on my radar because it's an hour south of San Francisco, and I live inside of San Francisco. And um, the timing of everything really just worked out. I was mentoring a friend of mine, told him that I was tired of a startup life. He said, well, I, I got a guy at Netflix. Give me a resume. I'll shop it around for you. I sent it to him, not thinking anything of it, continued on my own path of interviewing around, had two offers, one of which was from Amazon um, as a software engineer. And next thing I know, while I was in the midst of those interviewing rounds, I get an email out of the blue from uh, a Netflix hiring manager telling me that they had a position, they heard great things about me, and they they wanted to talk to me and see if I was interested. Up until that point, I, you know, like I mentioned, I wasn't thinking about working anywhere outside of San Francisco because I didn't want to have to commute that far. But I decided that uh, getting an extra job offer wouldn't hurt, right? So I said, oh, you know what? Sure, I'll, I'll talk to you guys. Let's let's do the interview and we'll see how it goes. And the more I read about Netflix's culture, the more I started to realize that this was the place that I belonged all along. And that even more so than the offers I already had on the table, I would have really, really loved the opportunity to work here. Just felt very in line with my values as a person. So long story short, went through the interview process and uh, they made me an offer and I, 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 I took it on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me more about this, this mature culture. I'm really, I'm interested to hear about that. Well, uh, so some, some, I think facets of the culture are a little controversial, such as the fact that we only hire senior level folks. Now, we have made exceptions in the past, but it really depends on the rarity of the role and uh, honestly how great the person is for it. But generally, we only look for people that have three to five years experience. Um, and we like to pay those folks at top of market. And then when we bring you in, we believe in giving you full transparency. So there aren't a lot of uh, roadblocks or and there's not a lot of bureaucracy in order for you to get access to certain information and things like that. Um, and we believe in this concept of freedom and responsibility. And so we'd rather give you business context, give you all the information you need and trust you to do the right thing. Right. And so because they're senior level folks and because we're paid at the top of market, we don't have to worry about a lot of the other little things with regards to our life. We have unlimited time off. Uh, we're allowed to really self-manage and self-direct um, and we're just sort of encouraged to add value wherever we see value needs to be added, so to speak. Um, and when you have a bunch of people that are sort of at the top of their game, who know what they're doing, who've kind of been around the block and who are who are um, ready to do good work and primed to do that, it, it, it actually just unlocks a lot of, um, I think, velocity in a lot of different ways. And so it, it really feels mature, even in a, in a sense of a lot of the conversations we have and the, and the way we go about building product. And it, it's, I've, I've been in a lot of different places in my time. I've worked at big banks, I've worked in big pharma, 
But because folks here are mostly focused on doing great work, you don't find that people are out to get your job or they're out to sabotage you or they're trying to play games behind your back or anything like that. And um, it's, it's actually really amazing how much lighter you feel coming into work every day in that kind of environment. Hmm. That's a... <laughs> no, no, I, I, you, you got me with the lighter part. For some reason, I was just thinking of uh, that uh, like Toni Morrison quote about people flying. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but uh, no, I could understand that feeling of knowing that you have this very competent team that can get work done. There's less um, sort of hand-holding and everything. You know, you, you have a mission, you know what the goal is, and you work towards that. Right. Now, for designers, how does that look? Because I'm curious, you know, with you working on the UI team, I'm sure there's a very robust, you know, tech team around everything that happens with delivery mm-hmm. and such with Netflix marketing and stuff. What does it look like for designers at Netflix? That's a that's a great question. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I know that designers also have an equal amount of freedom. I would imagine they they have a lot more impact and control over things because designers are often working uh, closer to the customer or closer to the stakeholder of whatever it is we're building. And so they've really got to understand the needs of who are, who will be using the apps that we're building. Um, and they also work closely with our project managing partners, sorry, product management partners mm-hmm. to understand, uh, exactly, you know, what features need to be built, how it should work, what the UX is around that. Um, and so, all of the designers that I've worked with here so far, they just understand products in a different way and they quickly, quickly can ramp up on things. And they're usually very, very open and communicative, very iterative. Feedback loop is usually wide open. They always make themselves available. Some will hop into the code base and you know make little tweaks here and there if they decide to change colors of stuff. Um, and they're just really, we're just all really given lots of freedom. And so it's kind of interesting seeing what the different roles here look like with the type of, with the breadth of freedom that Netflix affords us. Now, aside from, I guess, just regular, you know, Netflix viewing, um, I think a lot of our audience also knows about Netflix through like some of the initiatives that they put together. Mm -hmm. I know to reach out to the black community, they have Mm -hmm. strong black lead. They've got, you know, podcasts that Mm -hmm. go along with that and everything. Do those kind of initiatives play into the work that you do in any sort of way? Uh, unfortunately, I am pretty far removed from that. Um, so those initiatives are led through our Los Angeles office, and I work out of oh. our Los Gatos office. Um, it is still a part of the marketing team, but that is a different piece of the marketing team that I actually do not or have not had the opportunity to work with. So, um, I, you know... I would. I wish. <laughs> I wish I could be a little closer to that, you know. But but honestly, um, no. The work that I do is a little further removed from that. Okay. How do you approach a new project at Netflix? Like, you don't have to tell me like if it's any proprietary tools or stuff. But I'm just curious, given the the huge scope and visibility of the work, how do you approach a new project? Uh, so typically, you'll have. Though, depending on how quickly we want to get the project off the ground, we'll just start to borrow people from different teams. So we try to find teams that maybe have a more mature app or a more mature product or a little lighter of a roadmap. And then we'll say, hey, can we borrow your designer for a couple months? Hey, can we borrow two of your engineers for a few months? And then, you know, they'll have a manager on the team and then they'll start just gathering information, talking to stakeholders, uh, doing a lot of research because, you know, we're very data driven and in, in all of our decisions. 
And then once we feel like we have a pretty good idea of what needs to be built, we just begin executing on that. And then in the meantime, we're starting to hire to grow the team and we're starting to figure out where this team sort of will fit in the bigger in the bigger structure of the business because sometimes it might start off as sort of a splinter cell team off to the side just kind of working quickly almost like a mini startup um, rapidly iterating and, and kind of ideating and then once they kind of have a more mature app or once they kind of settle on what MVP looks like and where within the business it makes the most sense to slot them then that's when you know reorgs can tend to happen but that's usually how it goes and I think that's how a lot of companies do it as well where You'll just spin off a, a team on the side, mm-hmm. get that product off the ground, and then once it starts to gain a little traction, then you kind of fold it into the rest of the business. So it sounds like there's a lot of that kind of cross-team collaboration then. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, we, we wouldn't be able to do our work without it because even for an app like I build, I'm on the marketing side, but you know, we need to have access to all the titles that are on the service, all the employees that, that work in the business uh, and, and access to other um, data stores throughout the business. And so that also requires talking to other teams. You know, if there is an API that I need access to that isn't exposed, I need to talk to those engineers to, to get it on their roadmap and work with them to try to do my work alongside them and parallel to them. So there's a lot of cross-functional um, things going on. And, and to that end, everyone is really approachable and really easy to talk to. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, we have a very, very, very active Slack community uh, where people just will hit you up out of the blue and say, hey, I'm working on this. I saw that you're the point of contact. Can you help me out? Can you point me in the right direction? Can you give me some tips, you know? Um, And it's really good to see that type of collaboration across the board. Nice, nice. What would you say has been the biggest challenge that you've had since working at Netflix? Um, I think in the beginning, my biggest challenge was finding my voice. Uh, You know, we all have imposter syndrome when we find ourselves in situations uh, where we're not 100% sure if we're, you know, we're supposed to be there. We don't really know where we fit in or how people view us. And um, about two or three months after I joined, we were doing, or we, sorry, we were going through a feedback cycle. And all the feedback that I got from the team at that time told me that I needed to speak up more in meetings, that I needed to ask more questions, that I needed to trust my ideas more because I did have great ideas, but they wanted to hear more from me. And I think a part of that was just trying to wrap my head around all of the the, the lingo that they were throwing around and understand the product and what they were trying to build and even just try to get to know the people, right, before I just start jumping in, you know, with and, and objecting with my opinions. But um, I think that's that was really... The hardest part for me was just trusting myself, trusting my ideas, uh, especially just because of how I view Netflix from the outside and how lean we are as a company. I mean, there's only around 5,500 employees worldwide. And given the size of the business and the market cap that we have and you know the amount of growth that we've had, you would expect us to have tens of thousands of people here. Um, and so to have so few people globally, but to have them accomplish so much, you know, you really feel like you're in the midst of incredible talent. And when you find yourself here somehow, sometimes it's easy to kind of doubt that. And so that was that was really it for me, was just kind of getting over that hump. Um, now I feel very comfortable <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm very vocal in meetings and, you know, I'll push back on things that don't make sense to me. And, you know, I'll toss out ideas if it, you know, if I think it sounds good. Just getting to that point, I think, took at least six to eight months for me. I want to pause a little bit on, on comfort. I, I want to explore that just a little bit more mm-hmm. because... I think certainly for, you know, whatever marginalized group you are, if you're 
black person, whatever person of color, whatever your sexual identity is, gender identity, etc. It can take time when you're like joining a new company or something to really settle into comfort. And I feel like a lot of tech companies and design focused companies as well have really been trying to play up this notion of making sure that you bring a hundred percent of yourself to work. You know what right. I mean? Yes. The thing about <laughs> making sure like you show up and you're, you're you, but it still takes a while to attain that level of comfort. Like I've been at my current job now here at glitch for a little over a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I think I just started to settle into comfort Wow! like six months ago. Yeah. Sometimes it can take a while. Yeah, it can take a while because it's not only you just feeling comfortable with like your coworkers, but then depending on how the company is, the company is changing, roles are changing, leadership is changing. Yep. And those are all things that you have to take time to sort of acclimate yourself to along with just the regular time to get onboarded and learn tools and learn systems and processes right. and everything. Right. That journey to comfort is something that I think is uh it is different for everybody, but I'm glad that you you're at that point now. I'm glad I'm at that point now too at Glitch where you can feel like you can bring yourself to work and really be who you are there. Yeah, thank you. And I'm happy for you as well. I think for me, um, it was always a little harder at startups just because they're a lot smaller, right? And as businesses grow and you hire more people, those new people, that culture changes over time, especially if it hasn't really been fleshed out from the beginning. Yeah. And here at Netflix, once I joined, the folks that are in the, the black ERG group, uh, employee resource group, here we call it Black at Netflix, they reached out to me and brought me into the fold ASAP. I mean, week one, they were like, hey, we see you. <laughs> you know, we're, we're out here. We do lunch every Thursday. We have our monthly meetings. You know, we talk about this and that. This is the impact we want to bring to the business. You know, come come and join us and be a part of us. Um, welcome to Netflix, you know, and to, to be brought in like that, to be to feel that warm embrace by by the black at Netflix employees, mm-hmm. it felt so good. <laughs> and I never had that before. You know, I never I never had just people of color to in in this quantity, right? Um, out here yeah. just uh, just making a difference, you know. And and th- when we're in all levels of the business, we're in all locations. Um, and for me, it really, it, I think it helped make me feel comfortable a little faster, mm-hmm. just because I knew that if something happened in the news or something crazy was going on, and I was having a down day, I can still come to work and bring my whole self here. Yeah. But I would have a group of people that I can go to who understood it, who I can talk to about that in the context of work too. Mm. Uh, and it just, it makes a big difference. It's almost, it's, it, I guess on days like that, it almost feels like group therapy, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I wonder if that's something that also comes along with that mature culture that you said, like the fact that you've got so many senior level people there, you have the velocity I would, ma- I would imagine not just in product, but also in culture. Right. Yes. And that's something upholding our culture, or I would say not upholding it, but improving our culture constantly is something that even our CEO talks about. Mm very regularly. Uh, and, it, and it's, and I think with company culture, it's super important that it is top down. Yeah. Um, because it's hard to start a grassroots effort to change things. Right. But it's easy when it's, you know, the big boss saying, well, this is the way it, it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, managers, directors, VPs do what you need to do to make sure that this happens. Yeah. You know, when it's top down in that way, it makes it a lot easier. And so because they give us the latitude and the freedom to operate in the way we want, you know, this is one of those things that come out of that. So yeah, it, it's great. Honestly. Nice. So you've been out in the Bay now for what, about 10 years, I think? Uh, it 
actually about two weeks ago, I hit my six year mark. Oh, six year. Okay. All right. Um, I was, you know, just doing my research and I noticed that you had done uh, a little bit of work for another guest that we've had on the show, uh, Damien Madre from Honey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what was that wow. experience like? Wow. So that actually did happen probably around, uh, I would say about seven maybe seven or eight years ago. Okay. Um, and that was, that was still when I was just building out my portfolio. So, um, just to, just to kind of rewind, went to school for criminal justice, um, dropped out after two years, decided that I was more into computers, taught myself how to build websites, uh, started going on Craigslist, looking for clients and things like that. Um, and let's see my, so my ex-wife at the, or my wife at the time, uh, who's now my ex-wife, uh, she and Damien started working together. I think they were doing a podcast together. Mm. And at one point, he decided that he wanted to create this website called Honey, which was for designers to leave reviews on each other's designs and kind of help each other improve in that way. And he needed a splash page for it. And because I was looking for new work to do to build my portfolio, he asked me to do it. Um, and so that was kind of how that went. He, he got me the designs, and I think I turned around that design, that uh, web page, in about two or three days. I mean, I got it done pretty fast. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it was an interesting time for me because I still hadn't had a chance to work professionally alongside other developers. It was really just me. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was just doing my best work and just kind of chugging along. But it wasn't until I really got a chance to move to San Francisco, probably about a year after I worked with Damien, uh -huh. uh, that I got to really kind of see where I ranked, how I stood. And I think that's when I really started to earn my stripes. Uh, and as you can imagine, that was another time of imposter syndrome for me in a big way. So uh, how did you sort of go from doing, you know, kind of landing page sign, I guess, <laughs> into software engineering? Like how did how did that career, how did that career path go? Um, so the first job that I got when I moved uh, to San Francisco was for a design agency. And up until that point, it was very, very appealing to me because I also kind of had a design background. Actually, so in high school, I started designing wallpapers and like album covers for friends. And I would do t-shirts and things like that, that I would sell on eBay. Um, and then that passion evolved into wanting to understand how to code and build websites. Um, and so in my head over time, I got it in my head that I wanted to start my own design agency. But then when I realized how much additional work, especially on the administrative side that went into it, I was a little turned off from it. And so instead I would rather just find a place where I can kind of just do the work. And I found, came across this design agency. It's called IDN, uh, not to be confused with IDO. Mm -hmm. um, and I was hired as one of their first web developers in the US. And at the time, I hardly knew JavaScript. Um, I could maybe toss in a jQuery plugin and kind of tweak it to make it work on the web page, but I couldn't write a decent function to save my life. Um, and really, HTML and CSS was where I felt most comfortable. But I knew CSS inside and out like the back of my hand. And so I was able to make responsive, pixel-perfect, uh, static websites in the blink of an eye, right? And so that was ultimately what, what I hung my hat on, and that was what got me that first job. And they threw me on all sorts of different types of projects with the clients that we worked with. Uh, the first one was um, I worked as a prototype developer at LG when they were working on their WebOS smart TV platform. And I was actually um, 
you know, suffice it to say, I, I kind of faked it till I made it, you know, <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where on the job, they would throw me in situations where I had to write JavaScript. And so I was trying to learn it on the job. And then I would go home and I'm taking courses in the evenings and reading books and really just trying to ramp up as fast as I could. And it wasn't until about a year in that it finally just clicked. Um, and it, it, it just kind of changed everything for me. And so after that job was when I uh, took on my first role at a startup as a proper software engineer. Um, and so I think learning JavaScript and, and kind of getting on the path of mastering that was really the, the turning point for me. But being at that design agency and working on those different projects was, uh, it, it was hard work. You know, it was hard work, but I, that was when I grew the most, I think. So it sounds like, I guess, in a way, I mean, I'm thinking even back to when you were sort of designing these t-shirts, it sounds like design and tech in some way was kind of always around you. Yeah. Even, um, I think my first exposure to a computer, I was probably in second or third grade. I don't know. And we had a windows 3.1 machine at home. And, um, my stepdad would give me a stack of business cards and he would say, Hey, I want you to take all these business cards and enter it into the computer. <laughs> and there was some built in, you know, contacts app or something. And that was, I can remember that was the first time I really spent any time on the computer. And he taught me how to play solitaire and he taught me how to play minesweeper, which most people don't even really know how to play, <laughs> uh, but it's a great game. You know, I highly recommend it. And ever since then I fell in love with, with technology. Um, and it wasn't until eighth grade that I had my first exposure to actually, uh, the power of being able to build a web page because I had a friend who built a website to review video games. It blew up. He got all of the gaming publishers uh, to send him free versions of every single game and accessory and console that came out before it came out. Wow. So what year was this? This was um, 2001. <laughs> oh my god yeah this is 2001 i was 13 and i was jealous let me tell you i'm not gonna say how old i was but okay <laughs> no but go ahead go ahead go ahead i was jealous and all i could think was whoa so you just wrote some code built this website and now you're getting all these video games for free you know and i cared more about getting the free games than i did about building right. the website you know but but to me it, it just showed me wow that this is a powerful thing this is a, this is incredible uh, you took something that was in your head and you made it into a tangible thing and now you're reaping actual live benefits from that yeah and it just honestly blew my mind so i had it in my head since that point that I want this was something I wanted to do, and I didn't actually get a chance to start doing that full time just because of limited resources at home and stuff like that, and a lot of responsibility at home. It wasn't until college that I finally had that I finally said, you know what, I'm going to teach myself how to start building these websites now. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so th <laughs> those were interesting times. <laughs> wow, I can only imagine back then because I I'm just thinking now about how, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about video games, like everybody has a a YouTube channel or something where they're trying to like stream games or they get, you know, free advanced copies of games. That's so funny that gamer, I mean, game companies were that's, I'm wondering what the website was now. What website was that? Do you remember? Oh, you know, it, it was called uh, pgnx.net. And I don't know. I think he just made it, made up those letters. I don't think they actually stood for anything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He just kind of made it up. And it also, this was back during the time when uh, online forums were still a big deal. Yeah, that's true. So it also, that's true. the site also had a forum on it too. Uh, 
And so he had a really active community on there, which a bunch of our friends were on. Um, but he would bring the games to school and sell them to us for 20 bucks in the plastic. What? Brand new. Yeah. Because he didn't play them. So what, what he would do is he would find <laughs> the review for that game on five different websites and then summarize Get it. out. Are you serious? <laughs> he crowdsourced the review, yeah. basically. Yes. Wow. Yes. And then he was... He was just raking in the money, man. It was incredible. This dude. So now he's like a VP at Bank of America at their headquarters. And I Charlotte, mean, if you learn but... how to scam that early, I see why you would go into <laughs> banking. But no, go go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it was of no surprise to me. <laughs> he's a good dude, though. He's a good dude. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so I was I was jealous about that. Um, and actually, there. So it, it kind of influenced me in another way too. By the time I was a sophomore in high school. I, uh, we got these graphing calculators for class mm -hmm. and we had like chemistry and algebra two and stuff like that. And, you know, in those classes, there's a lot of formulas you have to memorize. And one of my friends had programs on his calculator and I checked mine and I had nothing. And I was like, Hey, how'd you get those? And he was like, I don't know when they gave me the calculator, they were already on there. Mm. So I said, let me borrow it, take this home. And I'm going to figure out how to copy the programs over to my calculator. And the only way I was able to do that was literally by digging through the calculator menus and figuring out how, you know, actually replicating the code. Mm -hmm. And by that evening, I understood how to actually write my own programs on the calculator just by replicating the ones that existed. Wow. So from that point, I thought, hey, I don't need to remember the quadratic formula. I can just write a program that calculates it for me. I just enter A, B, and C, and then it just spits out the number, yeah, right? Yeah. So that was what I did. So I started even just going through the chapters in my algebra book uh, and in my chemistry book, and I would just plug in all of the different formulas and write programs for them. So when my teachers found out, um, my chemistry teacher says, well, I mean, you clearly you understand the material if you're writing programs for them. Right. So sure, yeah, you can use it on tests and exams and whatever you want. That was when my friends paid attention. <laughs> and so I started to sell those programs to everyone for $2 a piece. Wow. Um, and I had a monopoly on it because no one else could replicate them. And because at the time, in order to transfer data between calculators, you needed a special cable to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So, it was. I, I kind of always had, I guess, an enterprising mind, uh, if you think about it. <laughs> I was always trying to figure out a way to, to teach myself something or to use my skills to kind of further myself. So, it, it's kind of fun to tell those stories. <laughs> I mean, now that I think back on it, I mean, I had, I remember I had a graphing calculator. This was in, oh, God, this was 90, when? when I'm trying to remember what year it was I started using graphing calculators. It might have been 95 or 96 or something, maybe something like that. It was like the TI-83, I think, yes. might have been out yes. at that time. Yep. <laughs> and, and I mean, I remember playing like Bomberman on there. I remember playing, I think, Super Mario Brothers. I want to say the Super Mario Brothers or Doom, one of the two. Maybe Doom we could play on the graphing calculator. And, I mean, this was also at a time when you had – game boys and game gears and stuff but you couldn't bring that into class but you could certainly bring your calculator <laughs> into class and play games and the teacher is none the wiser unless you're sitting in history class like why are you on a calculator exactly and, and, and they're like oh you're you're like in here playing a video game or something mm -hmm. that is that is very enterprising wow you can't you can't get away with that now though i mean <laughs> no you know, no no, because I think too many, yeah, smartphones exist now. Right. Smart. Yeah. There's, I mean, you can just Google it now, but Google didn't exist then. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was definitely a good experience, but uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> 
it, it was just it was one of the many things I did because I was also selling the t-shirts, you know, and I, that took me all the way into college. And um, then I started to sell the websites once I started knowing knowing how to do that. Yeah. And then once I really started working full time, I kind of killed off the side side projects. Mm-hmm. But I think after Netflix, my next step would probably be just going into business for myself, maybe giving my own shot at a startup. Okay. Um, not a hundred percent sure what that would be yet, but I have a few, I have something in the works right now. We'll see kind of what it evolves into. What do you think helps fuel these ambitions that you have? I mean, it sounds like you've always had a knack for having a side hustle or some sort, some kind of enterprising nature. Where does that come from? Uh, I think always just wanting to put myself in a better position, always just wanting to set myself up. You know, I've always wanted to retire early and I've always wanted to uh, just be free enough to kind of spend my time the way I want to do it and to make enough money that I don't really have to worry about where it comes from. And growing up, I didn't have a ton of resources. You know, I, I grew up comfortable enough. I had what I needed, but I was always jealous of my friends who I thought were much better off than I were. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a long time, that was a big motivator for me was that I wanted to be able to provide for myself. And then I wanted to be able to, you know, get married and start a family and be able to provide for for them as well. Um, and beyond that, I've always just been highly ambitious. Uh, in elementary school, I used to get in trouble for daydreaming and I would always just stare out of the window and <laughs> just daydream about all of the amazing things that I would hope to do someday. Uh, and that's just kind of always how I've been. I'm a very lofty kind of thinker. I'm very ambitious and very high level. And I always like to see the best in people and the best in products. And I always look for the potential of what things can be or what happens if we 10x or 100x this idea. Like, this is cool, but what happens if we can do this on a global scale? Right. And so that's just naturally how my mind works. And so, and I get bored kind of easily. If I'm not engaged, if I'm not challenged, if I'm not interested in what it is that I'm doing, then my mind wanders and I look for the next thing. Uh, not to say that I don't follow through, you know, on, on the things that I commit to, but it's it's that if it doesn't evolve enough to keep me engaged enough, then I'm going to want to look for something else to challenge me or something else to learn. Um, and that's just, I think, what, what kind of drives it. Who are some of your influences? Who are some of the people that have like, helped you out along the way throughout your journey? Um, so one of my former bosses actually what was a pretty big influence on me because she was one of those people where she led with kind of tough love. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, I know things are bad for you. I know, you know, things are kind of hard for you, but you still better get to work on time. You still better do this. You still, you know, need to just suck it up. This is life. Things, you know, things aren't always going to go your way. Um, and so I think she was she was a pretty big factor in, in my life. And she's someone who um, I worked with her back in probably 2009. And her and I still keep in touch. I mean, we just spoke on the phone a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So so she was definitely a, someone. Uh, one of my uncles, as a kid, um, I always just saw how well he did. And uh, he went to school to become an accountant. And he got a job right out of college working for Ernst & Young, which is one of the big three accounting firms. And he kind of rose the ranks quickly and it drove a nice car. And, you know, just as a kid seeing that, I was like, wow, this is my uncle. And I was so proud. And, you know, this is I could see myself in him. And yeah. that vision kind of drove me for a long time as well. Um, and then beyond that, I'm the kind of person where I take little bits from everyone and from everything that I see. And so I kind of just draw inspiration from everywhere, to be honest with you. There's beyond those few people, 
um, and, and a couple other people over the years, there, I can't really say that there's the biggest impact, you know, there's, there's a single person that's made the biggest impact on me or anything like that, because I'm constantly always talking to people and trying to understand people and asking lots of questions. And I'm, I'm naturally inquisitive. And, you know, I always draw even just to become the man that I am today, I've drawn little bits of people's personalities that I've liked over the years and kind of just made it a part of me. Right. Um, and I think that is, uh, that is, has always been very beneficial for me. Now, speaking of, you know, influences, um, I want to talk to you about dev color. Mm. Uh, can you kind of tell our audience a little bit about what it is and how you first got involved with them? Yeah. So, uh, dev color is a nonprofit organization, uh, whose mission is to help turn black software engineers into industry leaders. Right. And the way they do that is by helping us hold each other accountable for our career goals and enabling us to help each other to achieve them. Um, and so briefly the way that works is they, uh, so when you sign up, you kind of fill out a little bit of a profile and among that you're choosing what your career track is and the four tracks that we have to choose from are entrepreneur, influencer, senior individual contributor, or engineering management, mm -hmm. right? And based on the track that you put yourself in and based on how much experience you have, they will algorithmically break us up into squads. And the way the squads work is based on uh, actual research done about peer mentorship groups. And um, they break us up into groups of between six to 10 people. And for any squad that has females in it, they try to make sure that it's at least 50% female. That way you don't have those squads where it's just the one girl and she doesn't kind of feel like she, you know, she can quite identify with most people or mm -hmm. just to kind of help counterbalance any of any of uh, sort of inequities that could, that could arise from that. Um, and with your squad, you meet once a month. And you essentially are reviewing what your goals are, the progress that you've made since last month in achieving them. And you essentially talk to your squad mates about things you may be um, struggling with or any challenges you may be facing or any questions that you may have to try to take your career to the next level. Um, right now, DevColor exists in Seattle, Atlanta, New York, and in the Bay Area. Bay Area is where it was born. I think we're in our four, fifth year now. Mm-hmm. Um, and our biggest goal right now is to hit 500 members. So, and I think we're somewhere around four, between three and 400 at this, at this point. Um, for me, DevColor has been, I've been in it for four years and it has been incredible because just like how I mentioned about the, the black employee resource group at Netflix and how amazing it felt to have those people to identify with that work, um, outside of work, DevColor was really that group for me as well, especially here in the Bay Area, because the the amount of black professionals that you come across are pretty, pretty scarce. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I don't know what the culture is like in Atlanta, you know, but but out here you see a black person, you nod. Oh, it's pretty black out here. I mean, <laughs> you, it's, you a, it's Atlanta. Oh, yeah. It's basically Wakanda you know. with, with traffic. But yeah. Yeah. But I, don't, I mean, if you walk down the street, and you see a, another black person. I don't know if it's common to give them the nod out there as it is here. Oh right? yeah, I mean, absolutely, okay. absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. So, so that culture is strong here, but I feel like it's, it's, man, it's funny. Like when I walk with my wife, she, she kind of looks because she'll notice because you know me and whoever else I'm walking past, we go out of our way to make sure we get seen. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, but Dev Color has been has been great. You know, and meeting up with those folks and being involved in that community. And there's also a very huge thriving Slack community as well. Mm -hmm. And there have been all sorts of opportunities to speak at conferences and to, um, 
to just have happy hours and get to know other members or to partner on projects with people or, uh, you know, there's the wealth of information shared within the community, I think, is is bar none. And even just being a member of that, I've been able to been fortunate enough to have some really unique opportunities over the years, too. So if that's in your city, anyone who's listening, I highly recommend you to check it out. Devcolor.org. Uh, fill out an application and um and I really hope to to sometime uh, get a chance to chat with you or meet you. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about DevColor. And I think what has been the most interesting thing for me is to see how it's really grown and scaled over the years because organizations like that tend to break down, particularly when it comes to merging out into chapters, because it's one thing if it starts in one city and you're kind of able to shape and control how the community there is. But then once it breaks out into other cities, that's a whole different thing because you're not physically there. Right. You wonder if like the same culture is going to be upheld. Is it going to be the same experience for those people? I have done volunteer work for a number of years for AIGA. And, you know, I always tell people that AIGA is only as strong as its weakest chapter <laughs> because the experiences can differ greatly between say the New York chapter, then the Atlanta chapter from the LA chapter. Like it can be just a totally different kind of thing. So to see DevColor still, you know, really grow and thrive as it has. And now it's branched out into multiple locations. And I mean, it's, it's really been inspiring for me to see that happen. And the fact that you all are, you know, giving opportunities to people and giving back to the community in that way is just, it's a really powerful thing to see yeah um and and i agree with that and to your point um the the staff who make sure that deb color actually runs smoothly uh they go to great lengths to make sure that the culture is that it permeates through our other chapters as well um and i know that they travel to the other cities quite often and all of the events that they host here for us they make sure that all of the other chapters get the same events the same hack days the same summer socials the same nice. annual kickoff you know they fly members out and if they ever catch wind of any bay area member or you know seattle member sort of in a different city where a chapter exists, they'll throw you into that chapter Slack channel and say, hey, this person's in town. Y'all should link mm -hmm. up. Y'all should talk. Y'all should do something. Y'all should connect. You know, this is, this is, this is, this is what this yeah. is for, you know, tap into the network. Like, no, take that's, advantage of it. that's great. <laughs> and like, and, and from what I recall, DevColor started as an offline group first, yes. right? Before it went yes. online? Um, yep. Yeah. I, I wonder if that's probably why it's been so successful is because you're able to sort of forge that in-person connection yes. first before then trying to like, you know, spread it out. So it's like one to many in a way. Yeah. And uh, the in-person part is actually paramount to the success of DevColor. Um, and we have pretty strict guidelines with respect to how squad meetings are run. Uh, and so we kind of review them every single meeting just so that it's fresh in everyone's mind. I actually met with my squad last night. I had them come over my house. Um, but one of the things is we have a confidentiality pledge that we sort of do um, where anything that is said in the room is supposed to stay in the room. And so anything that anyone shares with you that's in your squad, you keep it between the squad because uh, that trust is, is, is important to our growth. If we don't have psychological safety within that group, then we will want to hold back. We'll second guess things that we share. And then if that happens, um, the, that bond is broken and then that person is not getting the same value out of it that I might, mm. you know, it's one of the, the big things. Um, it's also very, very time bound and very 
regimented in the sense that we want to respect everyone's time. You know, we while we're meeting, we always plan out the next meeting so that there's no excuses as to why anyone would miss it. Um, and and it's I don't know the, the structure of it. I think really helps us to keep it uh, to especially scale it because since it's all kind of written down and, and adhered to for the last couple of years here, it makes it easier to sort of start to replicate that in other places. Mm. Yeah, I it's funny. I just got asked recently. I don't know. This may come out. Um, <laughs> this article may come out by the time this episode airs. But I was recently asked to contribute or to say some words to an article about a lot of these design directories that pop up that are like, you know, women who draw blacks who design mm. Latinxes who design, etc. Right. And I was asked if these are like, making an impact in terms of helping out diversity in the design industry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, and I wasn't saying that to be like a hater right. or anything, but I'm saying it because a lot of times what ends up happening with these, um, with these kinds of things. And it's part of the reason why I didn't really go that direction with revision path is that these can end up just looking like a museum in a way, Uh-oh. like it just ends up being a, a source of inspiration it doesn't end up being utilized as a resource or when it's been put together, it's not been put together in a way that lets these people that are part of this directory actually like get jobs or have a seat at the table or like make the measurable impact in the industry besides just being, you know, listed on a website with dozens of other people under a cool URL. Um, And I was hesitant when I said that, but I'm like, it's, it's kind of true because it, it's, I mean, yes, it's great to have all these people in one place and mm-hmm. you can see it and be like, oh, you know, what you, you look at <laughs> in February, it warms the cockles of your heart, you know, like, oh, that's so good. But then like, right. are you getting work from that? Is, is it helping you in your job? Mm-hmm. Is it helping you get more clients? Like, how is it really mm-hmm. shifting the industry aside from just being a name on a website? And so right. I like what Dev Color does in terms of having had the in-person connection first Mm -hmm. and then having all these events and things like it, it builds and fosters this sense of community that, you know, just from what you're saying, it branches out, it branches out further than just that group in terms of opportunities and things like that. Absolutely. And uh, during our annual kickoff in the beginning of the year, what they have us do is we will go into a room with our squad and then we'll do what we call a journey line, which is you pick eight of the most pivotal moments of your life and they can be highs and lows or, you know, however, however you want to represent it. And then we'll write each of them on a post-it note. And then we essentially draw a line with those post-it notes and then walk the rest of our squad through those moments of our lives. Um, and by the time you're finished with it, you feel like you really, you, you know, everyone, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, ta- you know, you, they're picking the eight most important, impactful things for them and who, that has shaped them to who they are today. And it's a great way to break the ice and it's a great way to start building that trust. Um, and I feel like in order for any group to truly be successful, you have to be able to get to know each other on that level. You have to be able to break down those walls. It's great to work together professionally, but I feel like the people who work best together are ones that understand each other's cultures. Um, they don't have to be friends necessarily, but they have to at least go through the effort to get to know the folks that they work with. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, the teams that are able to accomplish that are the ones that are able to work better together and they're a lot more productive. So what is it that you're most excited about at the moment? Um, huh, that's a good question. I'll just say music in general. Okay. Um, music is very near and dear to me. I never had the opportunity to learn an instrument or anything, but, um, I would love to actually learn how to start producing music. 
Um, I, I want to start, uh, I'm also hacking on a side project that is music focused as well. Um, I want to help artists get paid more. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to leave it at that. It's pretty general, but I'm a very musical person. I always have music playing and, uh, I, I went to Coachella this year. I've gone to music festivals in the past years. You know, I go to concerts all the time. <laughs> um, just really, really for me steeped in, in, in music. Mm -hmm. So I, I will say that's something that excites me uh, right now, just off the top of my head. Well, now I have to ask, like, what are you listening to? Masego, you know, Childish Gambino, Logic. I listen to a lot of lo-fi stuff too. Uh, there's this DJ who I love, DJ Complexion, based out of London. Um, and he does this show called The Future Beats Show. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really mellow, but melodic uh, kind of music. It's like it's like R&B mixed with EDM, if you can imagine that. Um, and very soulful type of stuff. Okay. Um, and so I, that's, I listen to that every week when he puts out a new episode. Um, so big shout to him. You know, anybody into that kind of music, I highly recommend you go check him out. So it's like lo-fi beats to study? Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something kinda, like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I'll check it out. I really, I, I've... It's so funny how that has come up like super recently as like a genre of music. It feels like it came out of nowhere in a way. I mean, I think people have, you know, I think designers particularly have always been very keen on music and having playlists, but mm -hmm. this whole like <laughs> lo-fi, like, I don't know. It felt like it just came out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> it rolled in like the fog and like now it's the thing. So I'm not mad at it though. I'm not mad. No, at me it. neither. I mean, it's, it's probably my favorite type of music, you know? And, um, I think it just, the fact that I listen to music a lot while I work and I, and I know many designers do as well, um, just to kind of help you get into the zone is, was a big impetus for me even wanting to try to build a music focused app in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I definitely, I hope to share more details about that, you know, later sometime in the next couple of months. But, um, you know, for right now I'm just, I'm working with two, two friends of mine and, uh, we're going to see if we can try to make a little splash because, you know, the music streaming music scene right now is super crowded. Yeah. When you look back at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? Um, what do I wish I would have known? Um, that's a good question. I wish I kind of would have realized it's sometimes hard to remember that people are people, you know? And when we look at people that have titles, we, we want to look at them as something other than human, right? Your parents, you, you hold in a certain regard. And so you kind of realize, oh, they're just people too. You know, your managers, you kind of hold to a higher standard yeah. because they're in charge of people, right? The president you hold to the highest standard because he's running, you know, the country, right? And so... In in theory, but... Sure. No. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. yeah. Well, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, but, sure. Yeah. But, but yeah. beyond the title behind, you know, there's still just the person behind these things. Right. And I find that um, I've been in lots of situations where I was frustrated by the decisions these people made that made my life more difficult. And it's easy to demonize someone when they don't do the things you want them to do, right? Or they don't say the things you want them to say or treat you in the way you want them to treat you. But um, I think if I had kind of recognize that sooner and if i had kind of realized that you know what anyone with a good idea can raise money and start a business but it doesn't make them a great ceo doesn't make them a great manager necessarily right it doesn't make them a great leader it just means that someone thought that they have the potential to 10x their, their investment and because i didn't spend enough time understanding myself and what i wanted to get out of work i instead chased cool ideas in the beginning of my career also because I, I undervalued my my skill as an engineer and so mm -hmm. felt I felt more humbled and honored to have these opportunities whereas 
they, I think for a lot of the companies that I worked for, I feel like they, they got a lot more value out of me than I got out of them. Let's just say that. And I always wound up in these situations where I, I ended up being frustrated, but it was totally avoidable if I had spent the time to really understand myself and what I needed out of work, uh, instead of just chasing an idea. So I think for me, it, it's just something around, something around just recognizing that people are people um, but then also taking the time to not undervalue yourself and then know what you want to get out of these situations before you find yourself in it. So what's next for you? What do you want to accomplish, let's say, in the next five years or so? Uh, next five years, I want to, let's see, um, start having kids. I want to start my own business. I want to um, have released music because by then I think I would have probably learned a bit more. Um, just recently came back from a trip to Japan and I would love to travel there more often with my wife. And so I, I want to start committing to like learning Japanese just so that I can be a little more, uh, so it's a little easier to get around there. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think high level, that's it for me. That's kind of how I see the next couple of years going and then hopefully getting that much closer to financial independence. Yeah. Okay. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Rich, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Rich C. Smith. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can search for me, Rich Smith at Netflix or something like that. You should be able to pull me up. I was on Insta, but I actually deleted it recently. <laughs> okay. Um, just, just because, you know, Facebook and just not wanting to really be a part of their ecosystem at all. Um, Fair. Fair. And a lot of people forget Instagram is a part of that. So it's like, if you hate on Facebook, you gotta, you know, WhatsApp is a part of it. Instagram is yeah. a part of it. You know, don't, don't you make exceptions. All yeah. the way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear you. Okay. Yeah, so Twitter and LinkedIn is really where you can find me. All right, cool. Well, Rich Smith, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, aside from just sharing your story about how you first got this spark for tech and, you know, the work that you're doing with Dev Color with Netflix, I think it's really important to show that community, I think, has been a big part of your success, like being able to have people in your corner that you can talk to when things are going rough or something like that, whether it's at work or, you know, whether it's, you know, just in general, having that has been what I think has been a big key to your success. And so I'm glad you're able to talk about that and share that on the show. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, you know what, Maurice, man, I, I really appreciate you for having me and just giving me the opportunity and the space to, to talk about these things. Um, you know, and I hope that whoever's listening to this will, uh, hopefully there's something you can take away from it. And I'd love to hear from you. You know, don't hesitate to reach out, shoot me a tweet, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'd love to, I'd love to chat and maybe see how I can help out with anything. So I uh, appreciate it. Thank you for your time, Maurice. I appreciate it. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Rich Smith and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Rich and his work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program, a grant competition that supports designers partnering with nonprofit organizations to bring impactful cause marketing campaigns to life. Sappy, a maker of high quality papers, has offered this program to the design community worldwide for 20 years and has funded more than 500 projects with grants totaling over $13 million. Winning campaigns have helped to raise awareness of social issues such as education, sustainability, nutrition, and more. If you'd like to submit a project that you care about, you can do so until July 19th. To learn more about the program and process, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. 
Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.